You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kastel-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, let me start by saying welcome, with the hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity and hunger for learning enough to check out the back catalog and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed. Like last week's episode with Rob, where we had a lot of really great questions that had been sent in and where we also discussed how you can combine simple trend-following models into a balanced and robust trading system and a lot more. So if you missed that episode, I invite you to go and check it out. Also, let me quickly give a shout out to all of you who took the time to uh, leave us a rating and review this week. And I really loved a couple of them that I want to highlight. One was from Sommelier. From the US. I have a feeling I actually know who that might be. And he wrote, Would you like to have a coffee each week with the trading legends? This is your opportunity. And maybe that's a good way to think about what we do, namely on an, you know, having an ongoing and casual, pretty honest conversation of what it's like to be a trend follower. And then let me also mention a great one from Abby in India who headed this five star review with the words, the trend for this podcast is definitely up. So I love that, of course. And uh, we're grateful to all of you who helps us grow by giving us a rating and review. Moritz, very good to have you back from your holiday. It's been a while. How are you doing? How are things where you are? Yes, happy to be back. It's been a while. I skipped one month. I was uh, enjoying a vacation. It's good to hear your voice again. Doing fine. I was actually on the clubhouse with Jerry a little bit for a couple of minutes, maybe 20, 25 minutes or so this afternoon. Enjoyed that as well. So good to catch up with everybody. Good, good. All right. Well, in terms of a market wrap, let me start by saying that Moritz and I are recording this on Friday, July 2nd. So it's a day earlier than we normally do. And therefore, the week is not completely over. But as it stands right now, it has in some ways been a pretty uneventful week with Uptrends in equities and energies continuing and a bit of recovery in bonds after the Fed members did their part to downplay the FOMC comments last week. And the latest U.S. job numbers just released today with 850,000 new jobs and a 5.9% unemployment rate does not seem to have spoiled this party. But in the land of commodities, it's been a pretty interesting week as many of them, especially in the grain sector, have made a good comeback after a steep sell-off in mid-June. So I noticed that markets like soybeans and soybean meal are up more than 10% so far in, in, in June. Lumber, of course, continues to trade with a healthy dose of volatility, although the net change on the week is pretty small. Bitcoin seemed to be stuck in a range, but I'm sure a lot of the listeners look forward to an update from you, Moritz, on this as well. And of course, last week, Rob told us that he's now has a small short position in Bitcoin, while Jerry the week before said he is still a little bit long. So anyways, Mart, I'm curious to hear what's been going on in, in your portfolio in May and, and June, I guess. 
Yeah, uh, interesting. Well, before we start, interesting that three trend-following traders have three slightly different positions in, in Bitcoin. Well, there we are, yeah. Rob is short, Jerry is still a little bit long, and Moritz is completely flat. So right. <laughs> I got kicked out of the thing. But anyway, turns out I probably had a bit of a crystal ball last time we spoke. I remember we, you know, we had this great run, or I had this great run, you had a great run, Chesapeake has, I think, a great run, or still has a great run. We just had this great time running trends uh, since the end of last year. And I said, well, you know, it's going to come to an end. Made all this money from the long positions in the grains and, you know, Bitcoin and emissions and was already preparing myself and stealthing myself for the drawdown that will will come. And then here we go, it came. I lost close to 6% in April and then another 4% in May. I don't know what I'm talking about. I lost close to 6% in May and then another 4% right. in June. And I have about yeah, 12, 13% drawdown, something like that. So from what I recall there, especially in May, there were days where all of the grains were kind of like moving south at the same time and got stopped out of some of those and then had some give back and, and profits there. I mean, overall, I'm still up 23% for the year. So I'm not complaining. That's a pretty good number. But still, you know, you know the drill. I now need to work myself out of that drawdown. I had a long position in Lean Hawks. I, you know, took a couple of notes. He had a long position in Lean Hawks and that got stopped out. And Bitcoins got stopped out in May. Lumber got stopped out where I had a long position. Some of the bond markets reversed actually from short to long. Yeah, it's it's quite a mix. Some of the positions that I have in my portfolio, let's say they're notable because they are pretty long dated. They have aged. I still have them. And there are some of them are now more than a year in that portfolio. NASDAQ, SMI, still long. Silver is a long position that I have on for a long time. Arbop, so that's gasoline. It's a pretty long one as well, more than a year, 276 business days. So some of that stuff is fairly long-term long, and it's still working. It's, you know, the gasoline market's moving up, so that's a great position. And some of the most recent ones, I'm now long the BTPs. I'm long the Bund future again. I've been short the Bund for a bit, but it's, yeah, it, it hasn't been nice to me. Nice in air quotes. Maybe on the short, I remember one role and actually had some positive P&L on the thing. Certainly that short position in the bond future, in the bond future, wasn't wasn't an exit with a full loss. May have scratched at the end of the day. So yeah, but when I look at the paper here in front of me, I have my portfolio printed out in front of me. Pretty okay with the way that looks. Very diversified, quite a lot of positions on. More longs than shorts, but uh, blended. There are some shorts and not too few. So that's good. I remember back in January, February, it was uh, 100% long. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Something like that. Right. So it's all pretty cool. It's summertime here, trend following trading, drawdown, what the heck. Yeah. And, you know, as we all know, I think we talked about this last time we spoke that I think you had one of the longest runs in terms of posit- sequential yes. positive months, right? So this is all, you know, this is all normal stuff. So interesting. Good to get an update on that. The update I'm going to talk about on Dunn and my model is really mostly just say because July has just started. So I'm just going to talk about the month of June since it just finished, really. Our trend following strategy, you could say, performed in line with the market correction. So we gave back also some of the early 2021 profits. Not too bad, probably more or less in line with you, actually, Moritz, I would say. 
and not surprising looking at the market actions for June. Commodities, with the only exception being energies, was really where most of the difficulties occurred along with currencies. But also in addition to energies actually doing pretty well, there were also gains in the equity sector, but not enough to keep our trend-following strategy from recording a loss for the month, but still finishing the first half up almost double digits so far. The trend barometer actually picked up a little bit this week, finishing Thursday night at 48. So neutral, but in the positive end of that. So we'll see. I think performance this week's probably picked up a little bit, generally speaking. On the volatility side of things, you could say certainly late, the realized volatility in the S&P has dropped significantly. And I think currently the one-month realized volatility is around 8.5%. That's really among the lowest levels since uh, the crisis began in March 2020. And the last two times we've seen similar levels was in August 2020 and January 2021. And in both cases, there were a little bit of an awakening after that with some spikes in the VIX turning up. Our volatility strategy, actually, it did have a quiet month. As mentioned, uncertainty seemed to have left the equity markets and moved on to other reflation assets. But the program finished the month up about 1%. So we'll see. For my own trend-following model, where I can always be a little bit more specific, it was an up week, but just staying with the month of June. The month of June finished down 0.7% for the month, up 13% year-to-date. Performance really breaking down with one group being up, which was the classical trend models up 1.1%. The group two models were down 47 basis points. And the worst group was the fast reacting markets, sorry, models group three. They were down 1.33% being whipped around a little bit in some of these markets. Sector wise, best performance came from equities and energies, just like with the Dunn program. And the worst sector this month was really currencies, precious metals, and bonds. And if you drill down to the single markets, no surprise. Top three, all equities, NASDAQ, SMI, and SPY. And at the bottom, we see the US 10-year notes, the DAX, and the British pounds. In terms of trading so far this week, uh, not including Friday, but only two trades so far this week, going long, a little bit of nat gas, nat gas. For one of the models and also going along a little bit of sugar for one of the models. And then in terms of risk levels, the risk to stop, meaning if all positions got stopped out today, really, actually it is, it would lose 11.57%, which is down a fraction from 11.7% last week. So not much changed there. Now, before we dive into a lot of great, another really cool series of questions uh, from Frank and John and Mark and Babak and Andreas. I wanted just to ask you a little bit more because I think, so when I think about commodities at the moment, and you and I really picked this up back in the summer of last year when we said, hang on, some of the grains are starting to break out, et cetera, et cetera. At the time, we didn't speak much about lumber, but I think lumber has become kind of the poster child for this reflation trade. Everybody focuses on that and look at that, even though lumber is not even part of the Goldman Sachs Commodity Research Index, as far as I'm aware. But anyways, lumber is um, something that people have uh, noticed, uh, maybe especially those who are building houses, um, that things have become much more expensive. 
Why don't you, Moritz, if you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit about where the prices have been in the last year, sort of highs and lows, where it came off, and kind of how that was handled by uh, your system. Because I don't trade lumber, we don't trade it either at done, so I don't really have a good feeling. But I think it might be a good sort of visualization of trend following in a sense, because that lumber lumber trade has, uh, or I should say maybe trend, has kind of in- incorporated both the, the good stuff and, and, and the fast reversal, so to speak. Yeah, I, I do trade lumber and I got long. The system signaled a long position. Let me see. I, I think I have it printed out here so I can tell you when I got long. Well, I can tell you, yeah, 2nd of December of last year is when I got long. Okay. And I, I closed that long position on on the 9th of June. Okay. So that was just a very nice run up, right? Remember the days when lumber was going limit up day after day and I was sitting there, thank you, Mr. Market, limit up and I'm long. And the next day is, well, thank you, Mr. Market, limit up and I'm long. People were, I think, amazed when it went above $1,000. The peak, if I remember that correctly, was around the 1500 something like that, $1,500 mark. I don't have the specific numbers here in front of me, but something like that, I remember. And then came the day, all of a sudden, it turned around. And pretty severely, you know, it, it turned around by going limit down, limit down, limit down. Recovered a bit, I think, um, at the 1200 level, if I remember that correctly, moving back up to 1300, but then going down again with limit down moves. I think we're somewhere around the 700 level, probably a bit higher than 700, but something like that. So it, it has essentially halved in the course of two months, yeah, maybe six weeks, something like that, right? And I'm now short. So it's a great trending market for my portfolio this year. I don't want to... That's great. And I think it's very educational for people to hear sort of a little bit about the times you got in and when you got out and, and now short. And of course, it is it is a bit of an extreme trend. I mean, it's very rare that we see a market move that much within one year, although it does happen yeah. once you look, once you start looking for these trends. Um, yeah. I didn't have but, a position reversal. I'm just looking. I, I can only say that because I, I have it printed out in front of me. So I got... I exited the long position on the 9th of June, as I've said, and then went short on in, in the September contract on the 28th of June. So about, oh, what's that, two weeks later or so. Yeah, cool. All right, well, we've got lots of questions to go through, Moritz, today. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to start out with a question that actually was, we also talked about last week. It's from Andreas, but when he wrote it, he originally meant the question for you and or Jerry. So even though Rob and I talked a little bit about it, I wanted to give you a chance as well to kind of just give your uh, a few thoughts to that. Mm-hmm. And also because you do look at all the managers as well. And the first question that Andreas was interested in is, you know, is along the line or the con- context is, you know, how to justify a fee structure. And the question was, what long-term returns would you expect from a short-term CTA with a 3 and 30 fee structure, any rule of thumb. And of course, I think it's better to talk about initially what returns do you expect from a short-term manager in general. I mean, probably grosser fees because the fees are just a function of, you know, whatever you charge. But So that was a question I wanted to pass on to you as well, whether you have any thoughts on this when you look at the short-term space. Well, 3 and 30 is pretty high. 
regardless of it, it being is. short-term <laughs> or long-term or anything like that. It's kind of like you're entering the, the renaissance technology sphere here. So at the end of the day, I think it's about the net return. But 3 and 30, if I were to pay that fee, I wanted to have a very consistently high long-term return. If, if you showed me two or three years of just you know outstanding annual returns and then saying, oh, well, that's worth 3 and 30, well, I don't know. Maybe that was a fluke and maybe the next three years you're going to have a down year where you're going to have down years and you may have over-optimized stuff. So that's one thing. The other thing I'd say is then if you are so consistently good as a trader, if you can produce such fantastic returns, why do you need my money to run your business? Shouldn't you be behind closed doors, tap dancing and just doing your own thing? Provocative question, I know, but I think it's a fair question. So, you know, really, if somebody has the capability, you know, see Rentec, they have closed the doors, right? If, if you can make 50% a year, a sharp ratio of two, three or higher, and you have that th secret sauce, I don't have it. But, you know, if you have that, why do you shop that around to somebody else for a fee? Especially if you're in the short-term space where things aren't infinitely scalable. You know, this is a much more tricky trading business than long-term trend following, much more slippage sensitive and, and these type of things. And then finally, final thought on that is I always put fees also in relation to volatility. If you're charging me a high fee on a low volatility product, that is not okay. If you're charging me you know, a 2% fee on a 20% 20, 20 fall product, that is an okay ratio for me. If you're charging me a you know two percent fee on a five percent volatility product, and by the way, these type of investments exist. I'm not making that up. You know these products do exist, and you know just you know do the math. If you have a five percent volatility and your sharp ratio is zero point five, then your expected return is two point five percent on a gross basis. If you're deducting 2% fees plus all the fees that come with the fund, blah, blah, blah. You're essentially looking at a zero. So why would you invest in that? So I think fees have to be a function of volatility and they have to be a function of alpha. And if the alpha becomes too high, the question is warranted. Why are your doors still open and why do you not do that just for yourself? Okay, fair enough. And, and since I've already given my thoughts uh, last week, I, I'm not going to spend any airtime on that today. The other question, and this is, of course, I'm not so sure whether it's really a question, but, you know, I think the theme here of Andreas was really, you know, the pros and cons of this relentless research versus kind of simpler dollar cost averaging a CTA or broad equity uh, market. And I I don't want to go into naming names again, Andreas has mentioned, but I think that, I think what he was trying to say was that you do see people who talk a lot about things they're working on, changes they're making to the model, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it, and it can certainly sound pretty, you know, it can sound interesting. It can sound sophisticated. But then at the same time, he's saying, you know, I'm picturing, and in this case, he was using Jerry, sort of laid back Jerry with ample free time. And just using very simple rules and versus probably a little bit busier Rob, the professor, with many variations and hundreds of back tests. So 
So that's just kind of to give you a visualization, but it is in essence, it's really the the pros versus the cons of doing a lot of research and changes to your model versus sticking pretty conservatively with something that seems to be pretty good, but mm. maybe it's not the, the best. Yeah. I'm, by the way, I, I'm pretty sure Jerry is doing the same amount of research as Rob, I, or you. He may be doing it in a different form. The fact is he's thinking about it, I'm pretty sure Jerry thinks about trend following each and every day. And, you know, sometimes more, sometimes less, but it's on his mind. He thinks about it, he conceptualizes it, he, you know, he understands all of these things, but I don't think that he's sitting still and, you know, not moving forward. He is, his head is working, put it that way, right? He's thinking about it, looking for improvements, questioning things, getting new perspectives to the extent that's possible. But so that's one way of researching too. You don't necessarily have to program every every idea that you have into a Python script, which is the, I'm not sure if that is the professor type of thing to do, but oftentimes this is a lot of wasted time because it's very easy to then just take one idea because you've read about it and immediately put it into code and backtest it, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas you could also, maybe this is what Jerry's is doing, think it through, does it make sense? Is that what I want to do? Does that the trend following mantra and maybe come to the conclusion, you know what, it's not even worth backtesting that thing. I'm not going to touch it. I don't do it. So you get to the same endpoint, but with two different research ways. One is to put it all in code and see what the numbers say. And the other one is to, you know, think it through ahead of time and, you know, conclude to you for yourself that it's not worth pursuing that path. So I guess we're all busy with trading and trend following, but in, in, in different ways. Yeah, no, I think that's a good that's a good way of of looking at it. Uh, what I can say from uh, personal experience that, you know, certainly at our firm we have a, a decent sized team of researchers, and so we look at a lot of things. And obviously, there's always something that needs to be kind of done, reviews, et cetera, et cetera. But when you look at the time spent and the actual changes that ends being approved to go into the system, it's very small. Because at least that's our philosophy is that you really want to make sure that you're not just trying to find a short-term fix for something that looks great in a period of, say, February 2018 or February 2020, but actually over the long term, it's going to cost money mm. to implement. So finding things that actually are truly improvements to a model, and maybe certainly when you've been doing it for a long time, is really hard. But as you say, it doesn't mean that we don't think trend following 24-7. It just means that we want to be absolutely sure that we're actually adding value at the yeah. end of the day when we make a change. And also, I think people should be aware that making a change to a model has its own risks, right? I mean, who's to say that you get it right and then, you know, you find sure. out two years later, yeah. So Look, I mean, it's... it's as far as I'm concerned, when I knew almost nothing about trend following, like when I started, right? So that's day zero. You open a book and you read trend following, but you don't know how it works. So you know really nothing about it. You start with that one. You try to understand the simplest things. And even those things are complex when you first read about them. Cool. But you get them. You put them into an Excel spreadsheet. You put them into MATLAB code back then and get your head around it. And then you're at that point in time, you know, still the younger Maritz between 25 and 30, I've probably reached peak complexity, which was completely unnecessary. 
because you understood the basic stuff. And then you thought, well, I'm going to outsmart these guys and show them a trick or two because all that stuff is very simple. So I can do much better, right? And that, I think everybody is almost going through that. I'd, I'd be surprised if people don't go through that phase where they're looking to add complexity to their system. Well, let me rephrase that. I don't think they're looking to necessarily add complexity. They're looking to add things that just improve things and make them stand out, right? To, to get something in return, I've made a change to the system. I've done something different that is better than what everybody else has done before me. But normally the result is additional complexity because you're fitting things, you're adding parameters that shouldn't be there. You're playing around with the system. You're using different rules. You're destroying your sample size without knowing it. That I've been through that phase. And that I think was peak complexity. And ever since that point in time, I'm very busy. Not very, I'm just busy and focused on dismantling my system. And I think I've achieved that pretty well to a certain extent at least, which means I'm taking all that stuff back down so that when I look at where I am today, I'm not necessarily back to T0, everything super basic. I still have essentially my own DNA in my trend-following trading system and the way that I do it. But when I take a step back, it's essentially a combination of relatively easy to understand simple things. None of them individually complex, none of them unexplainable, none of them counterintuitive. And by the way, I've added a while ago, I've added a spread trading system to my trend following system. And for, for years, really, I've looked at that thing. How do I trade spreads? Which markets? How to get in? How to get out? What contracts? Same markets or cross markets? Position sizing on spreads? I think I had it overly complex because I it was probably a necessary journey for me to go through that because I needed to you know look into every corner with a flashlight and, and see what's there and, and probably also avoid making silly mistakes. But it took me a long time. And when I look at it now, it is essentially a relatively simple thing again. And that makes me happy. That makes me in a way confident that it's probably okay to run with it because it's simple enough. It's not too too weird in a way. It's maybe a bit too early to say because I don't have too much of a live track record on the thing, close to a year, something like that. So yeah, I don't want to don't want to sound like this is this is done and dusted and and that's the way it needs to be done, but it is a simple system and by the way, it has stabilized my portfolio in May and in June quite a bit without that thing. The pure directional trend trading system that I use, I would have a, an even worse drawdown. Yeah, but you, I think you say the magic words here because I think a lot of the complexity that people end up introducing to their trend following systems, and, and we see that I think with managers as well, not just people who want to do it for themselves, stems from this fact that you mentioned it stabilized my returns, right? We I think we live in I think we live in a time where change and volatility is kind of the enemy to some extent. We we obviously know that everyone prefers, you know, stability that we, and I understand why that is. But I think in particular with the financial markets since the uh, crisis we've had and seeing the intervention from central banks to stabilize things, I think that it's really become a quest for many investors to 
avoid unpleasant volatility, avoid recessions if you can, if you're a policymaker and so on and so forth. And so this is what I see at least uh, most people do, even you know a lot of our peers, is to introduce things that, and they of course do it in uh, with good intentions, but it is to try and make the journey more pleasant as you know for the investors. And Sometimes people succeed with it. I'm not saying people don't, but but it is really hard to do. And and sometimes just raw trend following like we saw last year. I think last year was a good example where really that came back into fashion because you had enough big tr- trends really to capture using relatively simple techniques. And in the long run, um, I mean, we've talked about Bill Dreis um, a few times, you and I. And of course, he retired. I think at least his track record seems to have uh, been yeah, archived. That's right. Yeah. So, and if you look at his track record, you it, it's not for the faint-hearted, but it's a solid track record. And he's, I think, he's finished pretty much at an all-time high. I mean, his timing couldn't be better. So, but it's just not for everyone. And of course, as a business, it never became a real business in terms of size, because most investors want the returns without the volatility. So I think a lot of research is going into that to trying to resolve that, but it's really hard. And in most cases, we're just fooling ourselves because at some point that's going to come back to to bite us if if we make too many, if we deviate too far away from trend following, it's going to show up some somewhere down the road, I think. Uh, but anyways, speaking on 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 trend following, I want to move on because uh, we've got a few, quite a few questions today. But there's a question from Mark, and I think Mark, what he's looking for, in general speaking, he's speaking is kind of ideas for one, how to think about timeframes. We often talk about short, medium, and long term, and what do we really mean by that? And also, if we can talk a little bit about the timeframes we use in our models, what would they be? So that's really the gist of it. He does uh, say that he himself is looking at about six months in terms of look back period. And he writes, as I assume, it's the best compromise between short and long term systems and want to get 90% benefits of trend following with the simplest system possible. I don't use stops, either long or short, always based on the six month ish channel breakout. What are your thoughts in terms of the definition, short, medium, long term, and, and where do you find yourself in terms of time frame? Just ballpark numbers, of course. Yeah. There is no definition. There is no definition of short term, long term, or medium term, right? It's not objective. How do you think about is. it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm probably hostage to what the industry thinks it should be. Most people think short term is something like in the one to three month space. Put it that way. Medium term is three to six month holding periods, and then everything above that is long term. But looking at your face, it sounds like you disagree, which, you know, to me means, uh, see, well, short term, yeah, we don't know what no, it is. I heard you say short term, one to three months. I actually thought that was a little bit too that was long. medium term you, for you. Yeah. Well, no, but when I think about if so, okay, let me turn around here. When I think about some of the best short term managers, and I really don't think that there are mm-hmm. that many of them, both you and I know probably both mm-hmm. of them that, that we're thinking of here. I'm thinking days here. I'm thinking like one, two week max in terms of trade length. That's my impression of what they do. It's not to say that you could never trade yeah. that lasts longer, of no. course. On the other hand, I will give you that if I think about medium term being two weeks plus, you know, that seems a little bit short because yeah. that doesn't really seem like medium. 
So I do agree it's a bit of a gray area. See, the, the two of us are confused, right? But I yeah. mean, let's just name them Grable, for instance, right? That is a short-term CTA, but it is not a pure short-term trend-following CTA. They have mean reversion models, they have counter-trend models, you know, all sorts of things. There's a full basket of different strategies that they combine. I think they're doing a great job with that, looking at their numbers. That's the reason why they can, I think, have like one, two, three day holding periods because they have these mean reverting systems and that type of stuff. But imagine running a pure trend following system on a one, two, three day time scale. I've never got any, anything like that, net of cost, net of slippage. So, so to me, short-term trend following in the one, two, three day time frame is that, that yeah, it just isn't there. It, it kind of like... That, that's why I said short-term trend following is probably one to three months. And then sure. maybe for me, then the medium-term part starts and it goes out to three three to six, nine months even. And anything longer than that is long-term. So so I'm definitely more at the at the end of the medium-term and then going into the long-term spectrum with, with my trend-following trading. I don't have short-term trend positions. Sure. Yeah, so you also asked, Mark, specifically about the three groups that I talk about when I refer to my trading system. And this is a little bit from memory, but group three definitely are the fast, I call them the fast reacting models because they're there to kind of step in if things really get hairy very quickly. And they are really in the two-week time frame in terms of look-back period, kind of 10 trading days. That's what they would uh, look for. The group two, I would say probably medium. I would say they're probably medium term models. Keep in mind they're long biased and that might also actually influence the choice you have for timeframes. But I would say that they're probably medium. And then group one, which is what I call the classical trend there, you can think about that, I think, as, as kind of the classical long-term breakout style systems. And also, yeah, just to make sure you kind of... And, and there is there will be, because it's a breakout system, there will be a large neutral zone as well. Like Moritz said with his lumber trade, he didn't go straight from a long to a short. It's same, mm -hmm. he, same here. For me, classical trend often has a neutral zone, which you can either have as a breakout system, or if you use several moving averages, you can get a flat position from time to time. So, so I would say think about it like that. But I appreciate your question, uh, Mark, and your comments. Then we're on to a question from Frank. And Frank says, thanks for emailing your book. I've been sub a subscriber to your podcast for about two months, and I find it very interesting and insightful. How and why I found your podcast started with my interest in commitment of traders report. I started to track only a few months ago the open interest and volumes of long and short contracts of solely the non-commercial trades of currencies. From there, I went down the rabbit hole and discovered your podcast. I have a question for you, if you don't mind, but I apologize upfront that I'm not a long-term trend trader because I actually enjoy scalping. Anyways, each week I like to I like to estimate or form a bias which I will not trade against. For example, if the if I determine the US dollar trend is bullish and the euro is bearish, I will consider the euro dollar trade short only when my setup signals a play. To form the trend bias for the week, I will consider if long contracts and short contracts are incre increasing or decreasing from the week to week of each currency contract of the COT report. I'm just trialing this out for a few months, and so I'll see if the strategy has any merit. 
or if it's a fool's errand. But my question is, how much does C the CTA industry value or consider changing long or short positions as the volumes change over time? For example, just looking at non-commercial long positions in the yen, interest uh, has virtually halved from January to now, while shorts have quadrupled. For me, that's bearish. If I see and if I see uh, the U.S. dollar gaining strength in the next few months, then I think I know what to do. Anyway, would love to know what importance or not you place on the COT reports and if it's wise or not uh, to single out just the non-commercial stats. All right. Well, thanks for the question, Frank. Your thoughts on the COT reports, uh, Moritz? I know you don't use them directly, but... That is true. I do not directly use numbers from the COT. So the commitment of traders report by the CFTC, which comes out weekly, by the way, I think based on Thursday data. But I do have a dashboard, which I programmed, or which essentially my Tuquan's partner Moritz programmed for us. So we do look at the stuff, but we don't have it integrated into our trading systems. The reason we look at that is because it you know, highlights interesting markets and it highlights markets which, or it can highlight markets which are at risk of a reversal. So let me give an example. The We're only looking at the simplified data, which is the commercials and the inverse of the commercials is the small speculators plus the large speculators. There's different versions of the CO2 reports. You know, there's a version that includes options data and index hedgers and all that type of stuff. But we use the basic legacy data, which is commercials and then the small and the large speculators. And what we're looking for is essentially the speculators. And that, by the way, includes the CTA industry, the trend following traders, to become overextended or overly largely positioned relative to history. So they have a, say, a large relative long position in for instance, we had that recently in cotton futures. And the commercials were short. The, the commercials who allegedly have good knowledge of the physical market because they trade in that market to hedge. And by the way, I'm no expert in cotton, in the cotton market, not at all. But what was you know, observable there is that there was large participation, larger than usual participation relative to history from small and large speculators, and the CTA industry is a part of that. So what that means is, once everything's long, and they're so so largely long, who else is there left to go long, right? And then what can happen if the market stops going up, if it turns around, that trend comes to an end, there's a lot of lots, a lot of futures positions that are at risk of being stopped out because the market is overextended, right? So the market turns around, on a news piece or maybe just because the market wants to turn around. And then these positions will get stopped out or closed out because losses appear and these type of things. Again, it, it is not an integral part of my trading system, but maybe at some point I'll do something with it. I don't know. 90% chance I won't, but maybe 10% chance I'll do something with it at some point in time. There is information there, but there's also many eyeballs looking at it. We're not the only ones. I mean, the, the stuff that I'm talking about is not four-dimensional chess, right? It's Other people have figured that out as well. But maybe not too many are doing it, and maybe there's still room and still information um, that's valuable for us to see. So for a trend-following trader like myself, that could be interesting in the way that I you know, could handle stops or something like that and 
you know, handle exits. I don't know. I really don't know. But we have a dashboard that shows the markets which are at the highest risk. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and it is a tricky one because, as you say, there's clearly some, I mean, it's very clear to see that, that sometimes you can use that as, a, as an early indicator or a flashlight or, or something like that. Maybe you could even think about it as a filter to, to a model. But again, how much sample size can you get? How reliable is it? That's really tough. What I will say, and it's actually also something I'm going to mention as my pick of interesting content I came across this week. But I will say to you, Frank, that maybe, and it's not directly related to this, but I was listening to the latest podcast of Jesse Felder, who had a guy called Michael Oliver on, who's a momentum guy, and they talked just about momentum. And again, he, and you know, I can't remember all the details, but he did talk about, you know, he was using different kinds of momentum and lining them up and so on and so forth. And and as a trader, if you're not wanting to run a diversified CTA, as a trader, I understand the idea of having a bias. I understand of, you know, if if you think the trend is up, you're only going to take long signals. I, I understand that. It's not how we would trade as a CTA, but I understand the concept of it. So maybe you should go and check out that conversation that Jesse had with Michael Oliver and there's some maybe some momentum ideas in that let's move on this is a short question that came in from John actually it's originally a question to Jerry so I might posted next week when Jerry joins and it's how much margin he was using back in the day as a turtle when he was putting out 200% yearly returns. So I don't know the answer to that, John, but we can answer it from uh, Mortis' point of view and from our point of view at Don in terms of margin to equity, what's, what is normal. And I would say from our point of view, I would say typically on average, probably 20 to 25% is how I think think of the margin utilization in our trend following strategy, the, the original version of it. Of course, it can go higher from time to time if there are lots of trends around. It could go lower, of course, but on average, I think that's that's the range we operate in. I, I don't know about you, Moritz, where you are in terms of margin utilization. Slightly higher, but it depends on the number of positions that I have on, obviously, but something like that. Now, by the way, that I've added the spread trading, right? the spread positions, they get netted, not fully, but to an extent. So I now find myself having actually a longer position sheet because of those spread positions, but um, only a marginally higher margin utilization. Okay. Cool. All right. Now we have a long question, which is divided into three sections from Babak. So bear with me if I get it wrong when I read this long question. So here we go. I've been a regular listener to your podcast for a number of months now, and I'm also working my way through all the episodes. Having listened to many episodes now, I'd like to thank you and your regular and irregular guests for putting in all the work required to produce such a wide-ranging set of topics all related to systematic investing in one way or another. I have now been a portfolio manager for about 30 years myself and have close to always been a big fan of rules-based investing and actually allocate a risk budget to trend-following models in my portfolios. Having said this, I would highly appreciate your thoughts on the following three aspects and feel free to include this in different episodes. One, 
may say that individual asset classes, I, for example, equities, fixed income, foreign exchange, do have their own, their very own and specific high-level trading characteristics. For example, I'm strongly inclined to say that the free markets, society, society equity markets will structurally trend upwards while they every now and then experience massive drawdowns. Probably similar things can be postulated for other assets. Having said this, I tend to think that it may be legitimate to have quite different approaches to different asset classes. Now, if I've gotten this right from all the episodes I've listened to so far, you seem to be more in the camp of same approach in all markets. Would be very interesting to hear your views on this. So let me jump in here first, Moritz, because I I have a feeling where you're going to come from on this. But I don't disagree with what you're saying here, Babak, in terms of, one, I do agree that I think it's fair to say that markets are different. And if you ran some kind of backtest on different sectors, you would find that those sectors would pick different set of parameters. I'm also, open, on the other hand, a strong believer in this, you know, we trade everything the same. And I think in particular, maybe in trend following, I think that's very warranted. Now, having said that, if you've listened to the, I think I, I did it in December, this last uh, weekend of 2020 and the first weekend of 2021, when I described how we had thought about the design of the trend following model that I refer to, you will find that not all the models trade all the markets when I talk about group one, two, and three. So there is a little bit of that, but it's not necessarily meant uh, to be some kind of optimized version of that. But then I've also discussed with Rob recently that when it comes to shorter-term trading and shorter-term models, and one thing that I've been doing in my spare time and working on, there seems to be, I think, a lot more uh, scope for trying to do things a little bit different. For me, it's more like you or I prefer to say, okay, I'm not going to completely go into one camp in terms of saying, okay, I'm only going to trade equities this way and bonds this way, et cetera, et cetera. What I like more is to say, okay, I'm going to take some of my risk budget and I'm going to trade everything the same, just like I would do in the trend following system or Jerry does, Morris does. But then I think it's also fair to say, I'm going to take part of my risk budget and I'm going to find another set of parameters that are more in tune with, say, sector risk. So you say you might have the same parameters for equities, you have the same parameters for bonds, but they would be different from equities and so on and so forth. And then I'm actually also, when it comes to shorter-term models, I'm also inclined to believe that you can allocate a small portion of your risk budget to parameter selections based on individual markets. Because I like the structural diversification. I think that's what it gives me compared to just saying I'm going to trade everything the same because I'm a strong believer in diversification. So I'm thinking, so why wouldn't I want to diversify some of the risk based on different parameters? And I actually think that you can. I've not done the testing on on a trend-following portfolio with longer-term timeframes, so I can't say whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. But I think from what I've seen in the shorter term space, there is more scope to allow the models to be a little bit more unique, if I can put it like that, or applied more uniquely. Because I think if you get into the short term space, I think the rhythm of the market is actually more important than if you're a longer term trader. 
And so I think your results will be better if you allow for a bit of flexibility. Anyway, that's my thoughts, Moritz. I think it makes sense to combine different systems. But yeah. as far as I'm concerned, I like every system to be a closed system defined by itself and doing the same things. So if I have one system, then I'd like that one system to use the same rules, the same entry rules, the same exit rules, the same initial stop rules, for instance. Where I allow a, a deviation is not in those entry and exit rules. I do have deviations in terms of position sizing, but not in terms of entry and exit. So this is what we've spoke about before with you know, the correlation matrices and recognizing the fact that some markets are just linked together. Like some of the crude markets are linked together and some of the grain markets are highly correlated. And I need to be cognizant of that fact. And I want to represent and reflect that condition in, in the way that I size positions from a essentially risk management point of view without destroying my sample size. But that's it. That's a closed system. I encapsulate that. I put that in a container and that runs by itself. If I now want to do something else, a, a different system, different parameters, if, if, if you want to call it that way, then I would put that into a new container, a new box, all by itself again, with a unique rule set that applies to all the markets in the same way, and, and then run that system next to the first system. And, and there, in that way, combine a number N of systems, if you will, to increase diversification across the portfolio. Yeah. No, definitely. Uh, and I think different systems, different styles of trend following, I think that's something we we certainly do on our side as well. I mean, blending different styles of trend following, that makes also a lot of sense. So great question. Next one. Second, with regard to the above, I like to have my models designed to capture the asset class specific characteristics without even coming close to curve fitting. For example, for instance, this implies acting rather fast when it comes to closing longs as relevant, i.e. painful losses tend to happen unexpectedly and to be fast and brutal. On the other hand, we kind of know from experience that the way back up following a meltdown is tedious and slow. Of course, there are exceptions as always like February, March 2020. I like to compare this with climbing up a mountain, something the two of you can probably relate to given your location. On the way up, we typically need a few breaks. At the top, we better make no mistake, as this can lead to extreme pain. If we manage to deal with this with our rules, we kind of already have a built-in stop and hence can exclude explicit stops based on other approaches. At least if and when we have a long history of trades and a sufficiently consistent return distribution based on which we can derive a solid feeling for what the downside risk of the strategy is. Any thoughts on this? Sounds to me as if he's uh, trading a lot of equities, where it's certainly true that you're, you're falling off a cliff and then you're slowly working your way back up. I, I don't necessarily see that same type of distributional behavior in the currencies or in some of the commodities where, you know, Sometimes there's massive spikes to the upside and, you know, the move to the top side is really, is really quick and fast paced. And maybe then it trickles down a bit from there. So, so all these markets are different, but yeah, in, in terms of equities, it's, it's certainly correct. Look, I, I don't do that. I, I do not have a different type of stop behavior or getting out of 
losses more quickly in equities than in other markets or or because I'm, I'm losing a, a part of my open trade profits. It's probably what I've said before with uh, Moritz being at peak complexity. That's probably stuff that I looked at back then. I skipped that and took that away from my system and, and, and liberated myself from that, accepting more volatility in return for better returns. Yeah. So my answer to this, Babak, would be that First of all, it seems like you've done a lot of thinking about this, which is great. Uh, so I appreciate your thoughts. The way I ended up doing it in my own trend following model would be to say, okay, so actually, so I agree with you. There are a lot of characteristics you can find. The question is, can you find something that you can apply? And the way I've dealt with it, you could say, is really to use different exit rules inside each of the model, but the model or the system will always pick the stop closest to the current price. So, you know, so one particular model will trade everything the same, but it will it won't just have one simple exit rule. It'll have several. It might even have three different exit rules that I think make sense to have, and some of them will react very quickly close to a high, for example. But in any event, to have the safest portfolio in my view in terms of avoiding you know big drawdowns it will always pick the closest stop on any on any given trade for the day it might not be the same stop rule that that generates the stops in within the same week it can be three different stop rules but it's always going to pick the closest so i think you get the picture i think you can be mm. a little bit creative uh, when it comes to these things without deviating from the structural robustness of your system i would sure. say just always bear in mind the cost, right? I mean, these yep. things which look costless because it's you're tricking yourself sometimes when you say, oh, I'm, I'm using the stop that's closest to the current price or to the last close, the last settlement price, because that reduces my risk and it means the, the smallest give back of open trade equity. So I'm more protected. But think that path forward, you know, when... Imagine that stop gets hit. Sometimes it happens and you need to figure out how often that happens that the market then turns around. So you've got kicked out of a position. You no longer have the position. I'm not sure what type of entries you're using, but you know, as far as I'm concerned, if, if I'm kicked out of position, there is no immediate mechanism that forces me to get back into the position. I can be flat and many times I will be flat before I open a position again. So that means I've lost the position. And not having a position can also be bad. Having a position can be very valuable. Or I say it, it probably is a value. No, I don't want to. Let me rephrase that. Having a position is valuable, not can be valuable. It is valuable because we have a statistical body of evidence in the way that we trade that with all our positions and knowing their probabilities and their, their expectations, which are essentially the same across the sample size that we've looked at, we have determined and we can conclude that having a position is a valuable thing. So I don't want to be kicked out of a position for no good reason. And good in air quotes here, that can be a good reason to have a tight stop. But it can also be good to keep the position and accept the larger give back to keep that valuable position and, and then ride it again. Because that also happens. That is definitely definitely part of the real world path distribution of you know stock prices and commodity prices and currency prices and it happens over and over again right and that is 
I know this is, I'm beating a dead horse here. This is the thing about this open trade equity thing, where I look at that in a different way when I have open trade equity. And I, yeah, I, that's just me. That is money that the market has given to me. I know that, yeah, I'd like to keep as much as I possibly can. That's yeah. not the question, but I can run with that money. And I don't disagree with you, but the way that I operate differently in terms of my trend following model is that I have many different models in the program as a mm -hmm. whole. So I'm not just diversifying in terms of time frame. I'm actually also diversifying in terms of different trend following approaches. So it would be very unlikely that just because one stop was hit for one model that I would be completely out of that market. Because I agree with you, you sometimes need to let the market, you know, find its footing and off you go again. So this is just, again, to get most diversification in terms of entries and exits at the end of the day. And of course, sometimes you will get completely out of a market and, and so you should. But I haven't found it a limiting factor, but you're right. I mean, you can do obviously more research in terms of, okay, but what if I didn't use that rule? Would I have made more money? But then, you know, at some point you just have to pick yeah. your poison, so to speak. The thing you know that I want to make as a final point on that, I think if you're using three exits, you have cut your sample size. You've reduced your sample size by 66%. You can break that down into have a say the entry rule is the same, right? You now have three systems, same entry rule for all three, but one system exits at exit number one, the other one at exit number two, and the next one at exit number three. If you combine that all in one thing, you have three exits. And there is no longer just that one exit that defines your sample size. You now have, you know, essentially, if they're equally likely to get hit, you have now a system that has one entry and many different exits, but the sample size for each of the three exits is the expectation is one third. See what I mean? I've used bad language, I guess. I should have made that clearer, but you are reducing exit sample size. And the question uh, is, is yeah. that what you want to do? Is, or, or would you rather say, I have a very robust sample of exits because it's always the same exit. There's only one exit to choose from. And then I can look back on a couple of thousand trades and just look at the statistics, not at the equity curve, not at the drawdown curve, just at the, you know, the, the raw statistics of that trading system. And those statistics are, will have a more solid footing I would say, than a system that has multiple exit possibilities. Fair, I mean, fair point. We we don't have to agree on everything here on on the podcast. So we do. And in, interestingly enough, you kind of said it yourself when we talked about Bitcoin, right? We have Rob, we have you, we have Jerry, and you have mm -hmm. three different positions. So we are all doing things a little bit different for sure. Let me move on to the last question from uh, Babak. And he writes, a third, when working with a system which does allow a flat position in individual underlyings, we can come to the extreme of having no positions at all. This obviously will be even more the case when the system happens to be long or short only. As rules-based investors, we would not have a problem with this as we just follow our own rules. However, managing overall exposure can still be an open question on the way from many non-flat signals to all flat. Do you have a view on scaling and down existing positions depending on the performance of your entire portfolio, which would lead to, uh, to additional leverage when many non-flat positions exits and do well? Or alternatively, 
give us higher exposure to performing assets when we do not have a large number of non-flat signals. I think what you're uh, alluding to here, Babak, is whether we would borrow risk, me or we would increase positions if we have fewer positions on, we would increase the size of those positions to compensate for a lot of markets being flat. All I can say is on my, yeah, no. exactly, from what I've seen, so in, in all of my career and all of the systems I've worked with, that's not something we would do. And you can hear Moritz is agreeing. No, don't, don't get uh, me started on a yeah. Friday night. I, yeah. I need a glass of whiskey to go. No, please <laughs> don't don't do that. Yeah, and I think you know having. I mean, again, and and we don't know exactly what your portfolio looks like. I think the best way to to avoid you know going to basically no positions is to have more markets in your portfolio. But I will also say, and I mentioned that in the last couple of um, episodes, that for my own trend-following model, given the sell-off we've seen recently in many of the commodities, I was stopped out of many of those commodities. So that the portfolio has become much more concentrated in energies and, and equities, frankly, with a few extra positions. Uh, so far, it's worked out fine. But there is a risk you're going to, your portfolio is going to be reduced in terms of number of positions from time to time. It, it yeah. will never go completely flat in my case, certainly. But yeah, it's just how it is. It, it, exactly. There, there, there's no reason to increase your risk on existing positions just because another position has stopped existing or is not coming into existence. You would be destroying all your, essentially all your all your statistics, all the normalization that I like to think about in ATR terms or R terms and like, you know, having a defined risk number of equity on each trade. You would throw all of that valuable stuff out of the window. I can just say, please don't do it. Yeah, well, I don't want to say please don't do it. I recommend <laughs> I would I would not do it. Exactly, I think that's fair. Morris, anything you want to bring up before we move on to look at the industry performance? Anything you want to um, highlight in terms of? No, uh, it's been uh, those were the great catching up. Yeah. We didn't speak a lot about Bitcoin, which is good. Maybe next time. Yeah, but... we'll do that next time for sure. And of course, the fact that we. Um, we're already one hour and 10 minutes, so it's not like it's a short episode, even though it's no. time runs fast. I did notice the score. The Swiss and Spain are 1-1 one, one going into probably penalties, so maybe it's a good time to head to back wrap it up. To, yeah. to wrap it up and head back to the I'm, uh, I'm talking television. too slowly. That's why it's always so long. Well, there we are. There <laughs> we are. But before we do so, of course, the B-Top 50 index in June ended down about 1.03%, still up 6.08%. The SOCGEN CTA index also down 1.03%, up 6.55 for the year. SOCGEN trend index down 2.12% for the month and uh, up 7.5% for the year. The short-term traders index was down 48 basis points, um, but still up 1.04%. And as I said, at the end of June, my trend barometer finished at 48. So it's kind of a neutral setting i would say and i would expect that the indices yeah that the industry is going to come out with some red numbers this month anyways msci world index was up 1.4 percent, so that seems to continue up 12.16 percent uh, for the year and the bonds the global uh, world government bond index up 53 basis points in june i think that does it let's wrap up this conversation we hope you've enjoyed it and as i said earlier on we would really highly appreciate if you would go and leave a rating and review like so many have done already. But it really helps because the way the algorithms work in the podcast industry, rating and reviews go into your ranking. It's not just how many downloads you get. So 
we would appreciate if you would take a little bit of time out to do that. Next week, I'm joined by Jerry. So make sure you keep your questions coming. And you can, of course, email them to info at toptradersandplug.com. We'll do our best to get them up. And yeah, I think that does it from Moritz and me. Thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.